You're listening to the Canned Air Podcast. Welcome to a very special Halloween episode of Candare, your tribute to comics and pop culture. I am Jeremy Colley. And I'm Jack Doherty. And I'm Jake Runyon. And boy, have we got a good episode for you today. We're going to first start out by going around the table just telling uh, creepy stories, typically as we do in our Halloween episodes. Uh, I'm anxious to hear what Jake's got as uh, this is his first Halloween episode with us. I have some weird dreams. Three years to catch up. <laughs> yeah, me and Jay, uh, me and Jack have already told all the scary stories to each other. Yeah, we can tell. So, over here. <laughs> <laughs> then after that, we're going to be turning our attention over to our first interview with Nicole Cushing and talking about her novella, The Sadist Bible, which is a very interesting uh, project. The I whole, can't wait to read it. Yeah, whole concept came to her, and she said, "Like a how do you describe dream. it? Fever dream, fever dream, nightmarish yeah. daydream." So, what sort a perfect interview for yeah. this episode. And then after that, we're going to be turning our attention over to an interview we had with. Robin Shelby, who's the actress who portrayed one of the best-known ghosts out there from Ghostbusters 2, Slimer. And she was also Lady Slimer in Ghostbusters Answer the Call. It just came out in 2016. So I'm going to say the most, Spud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the most iconic ghost in American culture. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Move over, Patrick Swayze. Oh, <laughs> wow. You, wow. Yeah, no, you heard me. I stand by what I said. Uh, man, I love Slimer, though. I mean, he was my favorite Ghostbuster, I think, from the cartoon. Like, oh, growing yeah. up, he was, yeah, like, the best the part best. of it. Yeah. Like, I'm trying to remember that voice. Yeah. <laughs> cool that they kind of, like, fleshed him out with the cartoon. Right, yeah, yeah exactly. So Fleshed him out. He's a ghost. Oh, uh, look at this Poor guy. Poor choice of words. This Jeez. guy. All right, well, let's just kick it off with our very spooky retro round table. There's no earthly way of knowing. He's singing. Which direction we are going? There's no knowing where we're rowing, or which way the river's flowing. Is it raining? Is it snowing? Is a hurricane a blowing? <laughs> Not a speck of light is showing, so the danger must be growing. Are the fires of hell a-glowing? Is the grizzly reaper mowing? Yes! The danger must be growing, for the rowers keep on rowing, and they're certainly not showing any signs that they are slowing! All right. Um, in our very first episode, uh, or excuse me, on our very first Halloween episode, me and Jack uh, kind of went back and forth telling supernatural stories that uh, we had both encountered uh, personally. But uh, since, Jake, this is your very first Halloween that episode, very special. Uh, I thought maybe we could start saying if maybe you personally have had any kind of weird things happen with you supernaturally kind of things. I got a little something crazy. Oh, goody, goody, goody. Yeah, Let's hear it. That, that still... still keeps me up some nights. Oh, I'm, I'm excited. Really now, I should preface this by saying 
I want to believe in the supernatural, and for that reason, I generally don't. I think that I want it so badly, <laughs> I can't trust myself. So I've, I've got to be really careful about, you know, believing one thing or another can sure. be directly attributed to something like that. I, I guess I, I don't believe in the unexplained as of yet, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm open to that, like I know everything, you know. But I thought you did. <laughs> well, I try to give off that <laughs> you vibe. You suited, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right, he knows everything. <laughs> that's, that's what they tell me. But, <laughs> but um... There was something really odd that happened to me, which probably has a rational explanation. Probably any number of factors, but uh, it's like it, it's like Scrooge says in A Christmas Carol. You know, there's more of gravy than of grave to this sort of thing. You know, I could have had an upset stomach, and that screwed up my dreams. But one of the more frightening things, you know, I'd say the most frightening thing that's ever happened to me that I could consider bordering on the supernatural is um, I was young, not terribly young, maybe 11, 12. And uh, it was the night before me and my family were going to Disney World of all times. I don't know why. It is creepy. I know. Yeah, <laughs> why would you be afraid before you went exactly. to Disney World? Exactly. I've got every reason to be feeling great, but I, I was having trouble sleeping. When I finally fell asleep, I started having this very vivid, tangible dream. Everything had kind of a heaviness to it. You don't get in your, I want to say your average dream. You know, it it felt real in a way that was unusual, and I was underwater. And I could see the surface and a little bit of sunlight coming through, but I was sinking. I was aware of the fact that I was being drawn down. I couldn't tell you what or why. And the water was gradually getting darker, like reaching the bottom of a trench. Mm -hmm. There were some fish here and there, little bits of sea life. But before long, there was nothing, just black water, just emptiness. Further down I went the darker it got, until I started seeing the seafloor below me. Just coral and fish bones and weird dead matter. And I kept going, and when I touched the bottom, instead of stopping there, I started sinking through. I remember somehow it kept getting darker and blacker and more horrible, to the point where I couldn't see anything in front of my face. I moved my hands, and this is a dream, so the rules don't really apply, Mm -hmm. you know? And, And I recall feeling a sort of Pressure. Maybe it was my mind telling me, like, this deep underwater, you're being crushed, right? right? I mean, that's how it works. But it just kept going, and I kept sinking. And below the seafloor, I remember seeing these these shipwrecks, old ships, wooden ships, ships that couldn't have possibly been that far below, completely coated in corals and urchins, you know, whatever bizarre abyssal life is down near the bottom of the trenches. And I could see in the distance these figures... And they were evenly spaced, like they were marching. And somehow I, I got closer to them. I was like at the mercy of the current, and it kept pushing me around. And I saw these things. They were like anglerfish. They were long and gangly. And I don't want to say they were like fish people, because that suggests a sort of natural process behind whatever created them. They were like some horrible fish hybrid. They shouldn't have been. And seeing that, I sensed it. I felt it. There was something horrid about them. And one of them became aware of me. And then all the rest. And I remember they were piling in and grabbing me and pulling me this way and that. And when I woke up, and this is the worst part, because I've had bad dreams before. You know, everyone's had a nightmare that stuck with them. But when I woke up, I woke up to the very distinct sensation of someone screaming in my left ear. I could, I would have bet any money I have, any money I'll ever make, there was somebody next to me screaming in my ear, and that's what woke me up. Mm. I, it's so hard to explain. You know, every now and then you wake up with a jolt, 
But this was different. This was real. It was loud. There was sound. And I turned the lights on. And I sat in bed for, I think, four or five hours just trying to process whatever happened. Something about the combination of, of that dream and how real it felt and how heavy and oppressive it was. And then just knowing somehow there was something next to me, something right up next to me that I can't explain. It really stuck with me, and I, I still think about it. Mm. Barely a day goes by. I don't think about it in some capacity, and I'm sure it was just some, I don't know, sleep paralysis, some weird lucid dream. I, I don't know <laughs> what it was, but... Well, based on some of the uh, practical jokes you say your sister has pulled on you, <laughs> yeah, maybe she was just under the bed Seriously. <laughs> I don't know what device she hooked up to scream at my head in the middle of the night, but... God, it was it was rough. Something about that really got me, and, and it just feels wrong thinking back on it. It just ugh. yeah. We've had that conversation before about dreams that seem yeah. a little too real and whatnot. And they start to bleed out. You know, it's mm. Lord forbid you're asleep with your eyes open and <laughs> start superimposing <laughs> that nightmare world onto your surroundings. Ugh. Wow. Yeah, that is kind of creepy. It's, it creeped me out. It just felt wrong. It, uh, you don't live in an old house, do you? No, no, no. It's pretty new, actually. I'd watched it built, so there goes that mm. hypothesis. Maybe you didn't kill in, anybody in, in your room, did you? I can't <laughs> legally disclose that information until the investigation is over. But, but let's say no for the purpose of the argument. Wow. We did not kill anyone. I keep imagining that feeling of something loud and screaming in the side of your ear. Ugh. Just that the sense of... The sound hit inside your head. It was it was physical. There was yeah. force. It was it's hard to explain. Man. So maybe it was a poor choice for my story since it's so difficult to explain. But it was it's creeping. Yeah, it scared the hell out of me, and it still kind of does. Man, I, I was uh, watching some creepy videos online just of a uh, supposed real ghost caught yeah, on sure. tape, you know, and that stuff can be taken with a grain of salt sometimes. But uh, there was one that it was taken at a uh, it was an immense, what was it, a like a brothel or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't ask why, but uh, there was a, a camera trained on a bed, and this dude was sleeping. And you can see him tossing and turning through the night. But at one point in his sleep, he kind of shovels the sheets, and they go up, catch air, and they come back down. And when they come down, you can see the figure of somebody laying under the sheets <laughs> next to him. <laughs> And uh, you see him wake up and start to feel like, what the heck is laying here next to me? And he sits up in bed and is feeling the figure, grabs the sheets and pulls it away, and there's nothing there. And <laughs> it just looked creepy. Right. I'm sure it was bullshit, but right. it, it looked Elaborate pretty darn creepy. Homes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When they do it right, though, you know? Yeah. Because it's like just that level of, they use just enough effects you overdo it, it's obvious. You underdo it, it looks cheap. Sometimes videos like that, they hit that point where you're like, I don't know anymore. Yeah, yeah, I think right. the, the quality of the video makes all the difference, too. No question. Mm -hmm. It's like a yep. paranormal activity. It was Ooh. just home video, and yeah. Yeah. it didn't take a lot to make the stuff look believable. Right. That's true. That's true. All right, let's turn the table over to Jack here. Jack, what kind of creepy story you have for us this Halloween episode? It's a story that's been circulating the internet for quite a while called uh, The Sleep Experiment. Okay. It's about, uh, back in the late 40s, a bunch of Russian researchers uh, tried doing this experiment to see what sleep deprivation does to, to people. Mm -hmm. um, so they took this uh, chamber and put five people in there that were uh, enemies of the state, basically fugitives. So they, they pumped this special uh, gas into the chamber that would help them stay awake. Okay. And they just left them with all the supplies, cots, and, you know, bathroom, running water, everything. But instead, and once they closed it, all they had was, a like, a four-inch thick porthole that they could see in. And, well, they couldn't see out. 
but they could the oh okay the researchers could only stay in or see in and they had a, a microphone hanging from the center of the room and they left him in there for a couple of days uh everything was going normal um most that they noticed was the conversation from the the prisoners inside was they started to reflect on what they had done and like, why, like how they ended up where they were why they were in there yeah just the wrongs that they had done and after a couple of days one of them just started screaming and running the, the length of the room just at the top of his lungs screaming 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 it wasn't and something about like he just started rasping because he tore all his vocal cords. Yeah, after I think three days <laughs> Hours of, of that happening, yeah, all you could hear was just some every once Ugh. in a while. Um, all the other prisoners, they just started whispering in the mic. It sounded like they were kind of going against each other, trying to get out, saying, you know, so and so was actually doing this, trying to, to what's the word, tattletale, I guess. Oh, I see. Um, after. Was it another day or so? I think it was that all of a sudden all the sound went quiet and they thought maybe that the radio, the microphone wasn't working, but they were doing tests and it was working fine. They just thought it was weird that there was no sound coming from in there. They couldn't look through the porthole or? Uh, they ended up, the, the prisoners took shit <laughs> <laughs> and actually covered up the porthole so you couldn't see inside. Oh, wow. And after a little while that they couldn't hear anything, couldn't see what was going on, they decided to to pipe in there to let them know that, you know, they're coming in, everyone needs to lay on the ground, you know, or else you'll be shot. And all they heard was a voice saying that, you know, we don't want to be free. Now that's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> so once they ended up piping out all the, the gas, so it didn't hurt the, the researchers going in, they went in and found that one of them was dead. Uh, a bunch of his, his body had been basically ripped apart. And the four others were laying there with their rib cages ripped up open and all their innards pretty much laying on the ground around them. Oh, my God. So like auto-cannibalizing. Yeah. Dissecting were they doing? I wonder if they, were they doing this to each other or themselves or... It looked like it was, they, from what the story said, it, it was self-inflicted oh just God. by the way that it was happening. <laughs> just big chunks of flesh ripped from their body. They could see that their organs were digesting. Oh, my God. <laughs> They ended up taking the one guy that was dead. The drain in the room was plugged up with his parts, with his body parts oh. and flesh. So there was about four inches of what they think was just water. They don't know if it was how much of it was actually blood. There's a couple of soldiers that went in with him, too. A couple of the soldiers ended up dying later on just from committing suicide from what they had seen, <laughs> which oh. I don't think I <laughs> <laughs> kind of shit sticks with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how how could it not seeing four people alive and being able to see their digesting entrails? Oh my <laughs> yeah. god, that's horrible! All neatly arranged. <laughs> there we go. We're doing crafts in here with well, each other. You gotta bodies. pass the time somehow <laughs> if you're not sleeping anymore. But to be in a room doing that to yourself and then you know being given the opportunity to leave, I don't want to leave. Like <gasps> this is what you'd prefer at this yeah, point. Something new, something better. Ugh. <laughs> oh. Once they took out the prisoners, they were. They were pleading and begging not to leave, to turn the gas back on the whole time, because they didn't want to fall asleep. They were afraid. Um, they ended up doing surgery to to help put back together some of them. They tried to put them under with morphine, a type of morphine that it was like 10 times more than a normal person, but it wasn't doing anything. They I can't imagine it would. At breaking that one moment. of the guard's arm. He had like a huge wrist strap holding him down, and he ended up busting out through that and hurting one of the other guards. The one that they capture and they bring him to the surgery ward, 
His eyes keep fluttering, and every time they look like they're about to close, he flatlines, and then snaps back awake. Yeah. Right? And he keeps saying, don't let me sleep, don't let me sleep. Yeah, that was the big thing they were worried about, actually falling asleep. They wanted to be able to stay awake. Another one, he kept lifting one leg up and then the other leg up to try to keep himself awake. The other one would sit up and then lay down, sit up and lay down. And all of a sudden, one of them, he just, the same time that his eyes closed and his head hit the ground, he died. And they decided they wanted to put him back into, after they put them all back together, they wanted to put him back into the chamber and pump the gas in there to see what would happen. You're the one that had died, you're saying? They wanted to put back into the chamber? No, the two or just that were the, left. The, the remaining, okay. Yeah. And... There's one, once they went in there, one one of the scientists, he went in there and they were going to close in the scientist and the two two prisoners. Uh, one of the scientists ended up pulling a gun, shooting his commander in the head and killing what was left of the two prisoners. And he asked the one prisoner, I got to find it because mm-hmm. this is creepy on here. Three nights of insomnia away from opening myself up and eating all my own entrails, <laughs> I guess. Give me coffee. <laughs> the, the final... A scientist that was in there after he killed his his commander and one of the two that were left, he asked the the last prisoner, he's like, what are you? I gotta know. And the last prisoner said, have you forgotten so easily? We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from inside your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go to the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. Oh my god. <laughs> After that the scientist popped a cap in that, <laughs> yeah, into that for the best. Yeah, into that prisoner and then shot himself in the head. What uh, what time period is this? When is this is 40s, 40s, right? This yeah. is like... World War 2. Oh my god. There's yeah, that's a, creepy. There's a pretty gnarly image that usually goes with that story of this um, kind of mummified, disfigured-looking fellow sitting cross-legged on a bed turning back toward the camera. He's got these big wide eyes, no lips, and his teeth are all jagged. I've been seeing that one for a while. I'll have to look that up. I've yeah. never even heard of this. How- I've ever only ever seen just, the, like, the door of the chamber with just the one porthole right on it. Oh, man. And there's, like, a sign that's in, I think it's in Russian. There's a there's a crazy looking dude. If you just, I think if you Google it, like, Russian sleep experiment, it's one of the... But this is like a, this isn't like an actual photograph or anything. No, no. It's, it's like a prop or it's photoshopped or something, but, uh, pretty frightening yeah from what i know the whole story is a story it's not yeah, real it's, it's some crazy oh. bullshit oh okay i thought this was all real oh i know that is that the one that first one yeah, yeah i've seen yeah. that a lot of times that thing but yeah this is this is like this is one of the greats this one's been making the rounds for a long time i would almost say like i don't have any authority to say this really i would almost say this is one of the stories that spawned this style of story the kind of like unconfirmed crazy Experiment, you know, like the, the creepy pasta is the term they use. Mm-hmm. You know, just just amateur short horror stories mashed together, and it's weird. You know, over the years, all of these bizarre stories they've created like this this self contained mythology. All of these tales of monsters and hauntings and sleep experiments mm-hmm. they become interconnected. Right, they sort of created a narrative, not because anyone tried to. But conditions were right, and in the blank space between them all, there's sort of something. There's this form, and it's it's incredible. And, and the deeper you go into these stories, and the more you read, and the more stuff you find out, the harder it is to sleep at night. Because, <laughs> you know, you know, your conscious mind is aware it's all nonsense. These are scary stories meant to do just what they're doing. Right. Scare you a little bit. Right. Keep you up at night. Hey, it's Halloween. Whatever. 
but some of them hit so close to certain th- it's never long before you find one that just hits a little too close to home or mm. seems just a little too convincing and then you start to question everything you know? that's how this one was the whole time you're reading it in the back of your mind you're totally picturing everything happening yeah. every time th- yeah every little bit and then the whole little quote at the end about we are you know we are yeah. <laughs> it just goes to show that the craziness that those people had in their mind to do that to people just they're the manifestation of what <laughs> weirdness that lurks that within every yeah. one of us mm-hmm. that's creepy but the story itself is purely fictional oh, sure. i mean yeah, yeah. it's all still it's all fiction. still with you, though. that's creepy mm-hmm. shit you know there's something I don't, do we have time for it there's a super short one i want to go share. ahead you sure? we got okay. all the time I in the world. i already shared my stupid ass little dream thing I didn't go ahead know. okay cool you know, since we're a we're a pop culture nostalgia podcast, I right. thought this was really fitting. I'm sure plenty of the listeners have heard of this. Have you guys ever heard of Candle Cove? Mm-hmm. Boy, it sounds it's familiar, very, but... Uh, See, I, that's perfect. That's the perfect answer, because that's going to fit into the story. Well, they recently made a TV show on, what is it, Chiller or something? One of those channels uh, based on the story. It's been making the rounds on the internet, but it's... Uh, what it is, this little short story, Candle Cove, takes place on an online chat room called Net Nostalgia. People talk about old shows they used to like, old cartoons they used to watch as a kid. Basically what we do every week here. Right. And it opens up with someone called, you know, by their chat name, Sky. It says, subject, Candle Cove, local kids show, question mark. Hey, does anyone remember this kids show? It was called Candle Cove. I must have been six or seven. I never found reference to it anywhere, so I think it was on a local station around 1971 or 1972. I lived in Ironton at the time. I don't remember which station, but I do remember it was on at a weird time, like 4 p.m. Response from Mike Painter 65. It sounds really familiar to me. I grew up outside of Ashwin when I was nine years old in 72. Candle Cove, was that about pirates? I remember a pirate marionette in the mouth of a cave. Sky responds, yes, okay, I'm not crazy. I remember Pirate Percy, that was his name. I was always kind of scared of him. He looked like he was built from parts of other dolls, really low budget. His head was an old porcelain baby doll, looked like an antique that didn't belong on the body. Oh, God, that yeah. in itself is <laughs> creepy. the worst. I don't remember what station this was. I don't think it was WTSF, though. New person in the chat room, Jaren, 2005. Sorry to resurrect this old thread, but I know exactly what show you mean. I think Candle Cove ran only for a couple of months in 71, not 72. I was 12, and I watched it a few times with my brother. It was Channel 58, whatever station that was. My mom would let me switch to it after the news. Let me see what I remember. See, it took place in Candle Cove, and it was about a little girl who imagined herself to be friends with pirates. The pirate ship was called the Laughing Stock, and Pirate Percy wasn't a very good pirate because he got scared too easily. And there was this calliope music constantly playing. I don't remember the girl's name, Janice or Jade or something. I, I think it was Janice. Sky replies, Thank you, Jaren. Memories flooded back to me when you mentioned the Laughing Stock in Channel 58. I remember the bow of the ship was a wooden smiling face with the lower jaw submerged. It looked like it was swallowing the sea, and it had that awful voice and laugh. I especially remember how jarring it was when they switched from wooden to plastic model to the foam puppet version of the head that talked. Mike Painter replies, yeah, I remember now too. Do you remember this part where the pirate ship says, you have to go inside? Sky replies, oh, Mike, I got a chill reading that. Yeah, I remember. That's what the ship always told Percy when there was a spooky place he had to go inside. He would always zoom right into his face and say, 
you have to go inside. With his two eyes askew and that flopping foam jaw and the fishing line that opened and closed it. It just looks so cheap and awful. Do you guys remember the villain? He had a face that was just a handlebar mustache above really tall, narrow, dirty teeth. Honestly, I thought the villain was Pirate Percy. I was about five when this show was on. That was some serious nightmare fuel. Reply. That wasn't the villain. The puppet with the mustache. That was the villain's sidekick. Horace Horrible. He had a monocle, too, but it was on top of the mustache. I used to think that meant he had only one eye. But yeah, the villain was another marionette. I think he was called the Skin Taker. I can't believe they let us watch that back then. Kevin replies, Jesus Christ, the Skin Taker. What kind of kids show were we watching? I seriously could not look at the screen when the Skin Taker showed up. He just descended out of nowhere on his strings. Just a dirty skeleton wearing that brown top hat and cape his glass eyes that were too big for his skull. Christ almighty, Sky replies. Wasn't his top hat and cloak all sewn up crazy? Wasn't it supposed to be, what, children's skin? Mike replies, yeah, I think so. Remember his mouth didn't open and close? His jaw just slid back and forth. I remember the little girl asked, why does your mouth move like that? And the skin taker didn't look at the girl. He looked right at the camera and said, to grind your skin. Oh my gosh. <laughs> crazy. Sky replies, I'm so relieved the other people remember this terrible show. You know, I used to have this awful memory, a bad dream I had where the opening jingle ended. The show faded in from black and all the characters were there, but the camera was just cutting to each of their faces and they were screaming. All the puppets and marionettes were flailing spastically and just all screaming, screaming the whole time. The girl was just moaning and crying like she'd been through hours of this. I woke up so many times from that nightmare I lost count. Hell, I used to wet the bed when I had it. Kevin replies, I don't think that was a dream. I remember that. That was an episode. Sky says, no, that's not possible. There wasn't a plot or anything. I mean, literally just standing in place, crying and screaming for the whole show. Kevin replies, maybe I'm manufacturing the memory because you said that, but I swear to God, I remember seeing what you described. They just screamed. Thread goes dead for a little while. Someone brings it back. It's Mike. He comes back and he says, I visited my mom today at the nursing home. I asked her about when I was little in the early 70s, when I was eight or nine, if she remembered a kid's show called Candle Cove. She said she was surprised I could remember that. I asked her why, and she said, because I used to think it was so strange that you said, I'm going to watch Candle Cove now, Mom. And then you would just tune the TV to static and watch dead air for 30 minutes. You and your friends had a big imagination with your little pirate show. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> That's one of my favorites. Oh, that shit stuck with me for a while. That's creepy, man. It's like some poltergeist kind of. Yeah, they're here. <laughs> creepy puppet show. Puppets are already frightening. Yeah, they are. Marionette. Marionette Yeah, there's something so sinister about them. Oh my god. So all these people may have seen the same thing, probably just staring at that. Oh my god. I was going to ask, is there any like YouTube footage of this old candle? There's there's like a a video somebody threw together of weird footage and creepy stills and stuff. It's frightening. I think that whole part with the screaming. That's what it was. It was just the screaming, yeah. Okay, so That's there actually was it. something and not people just staring at oh, static. Oh, no, 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 no. The with... video came later after the story. The story's fictional. Uh, oh. Someone made it to look like it was... But someone yeah. made a YouTube video of that screaming episode just to enforce the story. <laughs> oh. I think and then they, like they made the... that TV show. It's called Channel Zero. And it's terrifying. 
I've only seen the first episode, but the footage they have of the actual show scares the shit out of me. It's just as creepy seeing it as it's described in the show. Oh, it's the worst. When we're done recording here, we're going to look this crap yeah, up. I got to no, look more into this. Awesome. This is nuts. Creepy videos, man. That's something I could talk about for hours. Oh, this is crazy. That's some creepy shit it's there, Jake. Awesome. That's one of my favorites. Oh, even though it's fictional, still right. definitely going to be looking this up. <laughs> I That's don't know. creepy. Is it fictional? Throw that on the oh. website, that video <laughs> yeah, piece. We should. Yeah, yeah, That'd for be sure. Great. Link to it. Well, what I'm going to be talking about this week, and since we, uh, like I said at the beginning of the episode, we're going to be talking with Robin Shelby a little bit ago, and the the uh, behind-the-scenes magic of Candare is that this interview has already happened. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, Spooky. Just wanting to kind of keep the Ghostbusters theme. Um, and this year being a big year for Ghostbusters, as the 2016 Answer the Call has come out, I, I've always <clears throat> been a huge fan of Ghostbusters, and I've always kind of known that they're was some back history with the Aykroyd family and uh, paranormal stuff. I just didn't know to what extent or how, you know. So I started looking into it a little bit and found that there was a book out there by Peter Aykroyd, which is the uh, father of Dan Aykroyd, and it's called A History of Ghosts, The True Story of Seances, Mediums, Ghosts, and Ghostbusters. And I'm still reading it. I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read enough to kind of get a little creeped out. But what this book is about is uh, it starts with them saying that after their uh, grandfather died, Samuel Augustus Aykroyd, who... What a uh, great name. Right? Especially for what we're talking about here. hunter name. Um, He... After he died, they uh, were cleaning out his house and some time later found this blue trunk in the basement that when they cracked open, they found a series of journals. And... Now, back in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, and I might have my time a little bit uh, mixed up here, but a popular thing to do uh, for you know, people to get together was to do seances. Oh, that sure. was like the socialite thing. Exactly. You know, it's Nowadays, like... it's what? Painting wine glasses while you drink? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'll, t- I'll take the seance over that. Seriously. Playing Pictionary with your friends. <laughs> <laughs> what a guess. We're playing bridge this week. So right. Like, we're summoning the dead. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a very popular thing to do. And uh, yeah, Samuel was a, a, a medium, I guess. He, he held these, these seances and had a group of people that would come over on a regular basis and do this. Peter, being Dan's father and Samuel's son, uh, again, the author of this book, talks about uh, his experiences, you know, growing up, what he saw. And uh, he said there was one time that they were having one of these seances and he kind of crept into the room when when no one was knowing and just kind of sat there and watched. And there are many different tools in a seance, and I'm, this is just stuff I'm taking from the book and pull it offline, as far as communicating. Let me back up. For those of you who don't know, a seance is supposedly when a bunch of people sit around a table and are able to communicate through a medium with people in the afterlife. And uh, there are many different tools in doing so, one being the medium, who is the person who supposedly goes into like a trance-like state and uh, is used as a vessel in one way or another for the uh, spirit to communicate through. Or there are, uh, for example, uh, one thing was a, I don't remember what it was called, some kind of a slate, like a a chalkboard that closes. So it would open like a book, and the writable parts are on the inside. And supposedly, you you know, while it's shut, the spirit can write a message on the inside of that. You can oh, open, and it you open it and see. read what they're saying. Uh, another being a, I believe it's called a spirit bell, where they put a bell on a table and put a like a glass, uh, like a lid over it, so you can't you can't possibly influence, but you know, 
the spirit communicates through the dinging of the bell. Um, another one, though, being the trumpet. I don't remember exactly what this thing was called, but it was more of like a, not a, tr- a trumpet like, say, Louis Armstrong would play, but uh, just more of like a really long... So like a crude brass horn kind of thing. Yeah, right? like a long kind end. of bugle yeah. thing. And supposedly with this thing, when uh, it was done correctly or if you had made contact with the spirit, this thing would begin floating around the room and the voice of the spirit would then project through this trumpet. Now, uh, what Peter recalls when he was, had snuck into the room and uh, was spying on this seance was when he got in there was a trumpet flying around the room and he could hear voices coming from it. What he was actually hearing, he couldn't recall, but uh, this, while he was watching it, knocked something over, uh, drew attention to the fact that he was there, which ended the seance. The trumpet then fell from, the, uh, you know, from midair and it was over. Pissing off a lot of people, supposedly. <laughs> but from that point on, uh, Samuel welcomed Peter into these seances and he sat in on quite a few of them. But the, um, just the concept of the seance kind of in, intrigued me. What, more than anything, that it was a social thing to do. I mean, nowadays, like, how taboo would that be? Right. But You can't you know. talk about that. You can't go into work the next day. Oh, me and my buddies, we had this really great seance. Oh, yeah, you, you're, <laughs> you're marked then. You're like, well, stay away stay from away. that yeah. asshole. Yeah. <laughs> had a quick word with your grandmother. She's in hell. <clears throat> but you didn't hear that from me. <laughs> but... Um, it was—it's just a very interesting book, and different, uh, many different people uh, throughout time who supposedly are, you know, transistors for spirits that sure. are more susceptible to hear them and relay messages. Uh, for example, there were a pair of—I might butcher this too—twin girls called the Banger Sisters who. I think I've seen that video. Have you? Oh, you son of a... (laughs) Different video. Sorry. I couldn't resist. It was there. I had to take it. And my naive ass. Oh, really? (laughs) Wow, shucks. Two banger sisters, one cup, I think it was called, right? (laughs) No. You took it too far. But anyway, uh, in this book, again, like I said, I haven't finished it all the way. There are many different... Pictures. One thing I found very intriguing were the pictures of supposed ectoplasm. Oh, man. That's some creepy stuff. Now, ectoplasm, as we know, made its way into the Ghostbusters movie, which appeared just to be like a clear, like, slimy snot, exactly, that's just kind of hanging on stuff. Get a sample of that, you know? (laughs) But um, supposedly, according to this book and what I've read online, is uh, it was not in that vein. Ectoplasm is something that you can't see with the lights up. You know, it's something that you see when the lights are down. How that happens, I don't know. <laughs> but like it's something close. that manifests like out of the mouth and nose of the medium. Yeah. Right? They start to like Orf- orifices. Secrete. Yeah. Yeah. Any orifice on the body, it just secretes from. And some of these pictures in there, uh, in this book. Hmm. What, what can be said about them? I don't know how believable they are, but supposedly these pictures here were taken in pitch dark with a with a flashbulb, and that's how they got these. Now, the first picture here has a like a like a pillar of ectoplasm coming out of this medium's mouth, which takes the shape of a hand. And the other one has faces forming in it. Uh, toward the bottom, you can see what looks like a skull, but right in the center of it looks like. And supposedly is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Ah, he was a major yeah. skeptic, wasn't he? Like, yeah, that's his I, whole yeah. Thing is, I thought he got in an argument with some medium at the time. There was some 
I'm not going to remember enough of the story to complete it. And if I remember correctly, his wife actually had maybe something to That's do. That's what it was. He was convinced his wife was communicating with him in a seance. He was a skeptic until that time. And he was like, oh, wow. OK, I guess, I guess it's real, guys. Right. I don't so, know. <laughs> yeah. So um, these pictures in here, you know, I, I don't know how much evidence you can pull from them but it's these are certainly not a person with the back end of a glove coming in <laughs> right. i'll tell you that much for sure well this picture right here you know uh you see like i said the mask coming out of her nose and mouth and you see the faces taking shape in it which if you ask me looks exactly like the beatles revolver album which i <laughs> went ahead and pulled up for you here with all oh, these yeah. little uh faces put in Just you know to the face. drawings it, i mean it's it looks pretty darn close pretty spot so on. <laughs> Call that the Photoshop of the late 1800s. But Some scissors, glue, and another camera. Right. You figure that one out. But out the uh, sleeve of her shirt here, which I don't know if this is supposed to be passing as ectoplasm, but if you look on it, you can see a checkered pattern, like a uh, like a like a dish towel or something to have. So I don't know how sold I am on these pictures <laughs> here. But up here is another photograph of uh, Samuel Augustus Aykroyd himself, Doctor Aykroyd. And this picture also supposedly taken in the dark. And these faces that are appearing in the darkness behind them are supposedly manifestations of spirits trying to come through. It's like the old double exposure photo trick. That <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was interesting to go back, and I don't know how scary all this is, really, but uh, to see the you know early origins of the ghostbusters that we all love today and how far back they actually date and how you know deep rooted in the Aykroyd family yeah. it actually is and if you uh, ever listen to Dan Aykroyd talk you know he's a big believer in all this stuff and in uh, UFOs he's claimed to have seen four himself Huh. What about you? What about you guys? Seances, UFOs. What, when what I was your younger, I was here? desperate to see a UFO. Oh my god! I remember me always too. keeping my eyes peeled, like tonight's the night. You right, know? right. That would have just blown my mind. And and there were, I can think of at least one time we were driving in the car at night, and I was certain I saw it. I'm like, there, there it is. That's a UFO. And it was right. no, it was a kite. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody lost a kite in a tree, and the light hit it just right. It was like a really thin, gnarly tree. I mean that in the literal sense of the word gnarly, not the tubular sense. Right. And it, it just, like, hit it perfectly. And I was young, so I'm like, da, there it is. No, it's just somebody's kite. Well, it was an unidentified That's flying true. object. So there the you go. The problem is we identified it. Uh, <laughs> debunked it an right IFO, there. <laughs> if you will. A definite flying object. But um, I remember, I've over the years, you know, I've talked to my family and friends about UFO stuff. Who hasn't? And I remember my dad years ago telling me a tale about uh, he was driving home from work late one night, and uh, he said he was just on a like a straightaway. There wasn't anything around, and out of nowhere, a light like shone down on his car. <laughs> and he said he just kind of stopped. He figured it was like a helicopter or something. He got out of the car, couldn't hear a thing. Dead silence, but there was this light just coming down what seemed to be from nowhere on his car, and as quick as he was, you know, grasping what was happening, it was gone. And... I just, you know, I've always kind of dismissed that. I was like, oh, yeah, whatever, Dan. <laughs> and um, one of the, not in this book, but I was uh, watching on YouTube some of uh, Dan Aykroyd telling some of his experiences. And one that he says was uh, one of them, he was on his farm one night. And I don't know if he was taking the garbage out or what he was doing outside. But he said off in the distance he saw an odd-looking light. 
And so he said he has a uh, he had a bike, like a police bike, that once you pedal it, it starts this generator, it starts these flashing kind of lights. Mm. And he said uh, his objective was to you know point it in the direction that you've seen this light, pedal it, get these lights flashing, hopefully to gain some attention. And he says that uh, in doing so, he did grab some attention of this thing, and it did come to him. <laughs> and word for word, what he said was this thing came over, silent as can be, shone a light right down on him. Sat there for a little bit, and as quickly as it happened, the light went away, and it was gone. Hmm. And that, that kind of was like, well, okay, there's another story <laughs> like that. That was kind of creepy. No, I don't know if you remember, Jack, uh, when we first did our very first Halloween episodes, like episode three or something, uh, a story that I had was, uh, it was it actually happened on Halloween night. Yeah. I was out delivering pizzas, and uh, I, I come out from the sticks. You know, I come from a town that has like three stoplights. Um, <laughs> one restaurant and about 15 churches. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, I was on a back road. Uh, nobody lived on. It's actually near a nature preserve, a bog. So the only thing there was like a, a viaduct, like an overpass for a railroad crossing, but that was about it. And up the road was a, what do you call it, like those power, electrical power plant kind of looking things. I mean, it's not an actual plant, but uh, all the big transformers yeah. and stuff that are like fenced a, off. Like a relay station kind of yeah, that's it. Th- yeah. yeah, thank you. And that was about a mile and a half, two miles up the road. Well, I was on my last delivery, and I was really... Did I say I was delivering pizza? Mm-hmm. No. no okay, well, excuse me. I was delivering pizza. <laughs> I was on my last delivery of the night because I was trying to get out of there to go to a Halloween party on the other side of town out in the boonies. And um, as I was coming down the road... Mind you, I was driving a huge Oldsmobile Delta 88. So imagine a pontoon boat with wheels on it. (laughs) And um, ahead of me in the road, on the road, I saw a circular glowing red light, which looked like a spotlight shining down on the road. But there was no possible way this could where this could have been coming from. And in my mind, I figured, okay, well, it's coming from these transformers. You know, some of these things have red flashing lights on them to keep airplanes from hitting them, yada, yada. And after going back, you know, uh, days later, seeing how far down the road this transformer was, that wasn't possible. So I slowed down and just kind of looked at it. And as I drove over it, I was expecting it to shine down on top of the car, and it did not shine onto the top of the car. And after I drove past it, look, drove over it, and looked in my rearview mirror, it was still there. So I got the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> yeah. And um, I kind of sat on that story for a while. I didn't tell too many people. But um, after I had told some people years later, and uh, there were some other high school students who had uh, claimed, they didn't tell me directly, just heard through a friend through a friend, that uh, other people had claimed seeing weird shit out on that road, too. So that, that kind of uh, stuck with me. So... I'm not sure, you know, what I uh, feel about the seance or uh, the uh, UFOs. I I definitely believe there's another form of life out there. It'd be kind of narrow-minded to think there isn't. (laughs) There's um, just so much space. Yeah, exactly. To think we're the only kind of life form? Come on. Come on. The thing that scares me is that we have kind of a a narrow—I didn't interrupt what you were saying. No. Okay. We have kind of a narrow perception of what intelligent life is. Right. We imagine in pop culture things that are not always, but for the most part, humanoid, mm-hmm. four limbs, big heads, big eyes. And, oh, and they say, by the way, those alien grays with the big heads, mm-hmm. huge yeah. black eyes, they say that's a psychological imprint of how we see other people as infants. When we don't have the capacity to differentiate very well, everyone is just kind of that vague shape, with the focal point being the big eyes. Really? Yeah, just some bizarre thing I remember reading, but... Hmm. What I meant to say is that we've got this narrow perception of what life is, 
and we don't know what conditions are like on other worlds. We can see here in the solar system, oh, Jupiter's a gas giant, you know, Ganymede's frozen on the surface, there might be liquid water beneath, or maybe that's Io. I don't know, one of the moons. Right. We don't understand the scope of conscious life, or even what that entails beyond what we are. Here, living in three dimensions that we can perceive, and a fourth that we only perceive in one direction. Who knows what exists beyond those boundaries? Who knows what's here right now Mm -hmm. you know what thing just sidestepping our perception there's just no way to know and and it's you ever you ever stand somewhere remote and you look off in the distance and you see a person sitting in their car in the parking lot or someone having a conversation on the phone and you think to yourself who knows who's watching me right now Mm -hmm. they don't know they're being watched yeah and i keep thinking about that no matter where i am who knows what's watching me right now? Right. Any of us, at any time, wherever we are. It's creepy thought yeah. to grasp. That's why I pick my nose only in the house. That's a good move. <laughs> <laughs> Who says you're not being watched in the house? Especially <laughs> with smartphones and uh, webcams and whatnot. Six or seven light years away, there could be some civilization that's based their whole religion on the patterns of you picking your nose. <laughs> good time for harvest. He picked twice today. Some interdimensional <laughs> cable show. Where, uh, <laughs> it's it's Earth. <laughs> Jack picks his nose, volume two. Well, I gotta see this. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson I was uh, actually watching him talk on he was on uh, Chelsea Handler's show on Netflix Chelsea Brooks a big fan of that right. I'm a big fan myself but sometimes you gotta watch what she's watching right <laughs> well he was on there and I, I hang on that dude's every word I love guy. him he yeah. really is great He's fun. but uh, he was went on to say that uh, there is a planet that they have, I, w- I want to say found. I mean, it's not like they've looked in on it and seen, you know, life just sort teeming of or anything. Identified in a way, right? Based on its position to its sun and where it lies in its particular solar system, can definitely support life. But getting there would, uh, you'd have to like, what was it? Send a crew, and that crew's maybe fifth or sixth, maybe even seventh <laughs> yeah. generation mm-hmm. would be the ones who arrive there. It's crazy to think that there's stuff even that far away. You know, know, we think about how long it would take to get to Mars. That's nothing compared uh, to, what it, you know, takes to get to another to solar system. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, very interesting stuff indeed. Uh, I, another thing, I, I'll end on this. Another thing I uh, found when researching, I was looking for uh, UFO stories. Well, no, Dan Aykroyd, uh, in the interview I was watching, he mentioned this one. Okay, this supposedly happened in Voronezh uh, in the Soviet Union in 1989. <clears throat> and the reason there's so much hype behind it were the number of eyewitnesses behind it. But supposedly a there was a circle in the sky, like a, like a pink circle of light that as it <clears throat> drew closer became red, like a very, very, very red. I think at first only like three or four children had witnessed this thing, but it, it grew really close and then like legs came out and it actually landed. Now by this time, many other people had gathered and I think they said the total uh, number of witnesses was between 40 and 50 people who all, you know, can say the same account. Sure. But this thing then, uh, what was it? It opened, some stairs came down, and like a, a giant, a tall, really looking thing came down that had a kind of like a dome looking head and three eyes. The two on the sides were white, the one in the center red, and came out with some walking box looking thing. <laughs> and it uh, came out, and people, you know, just silently kind of were staring at it. And I guess first they just disappeared. As quickly as, as they were there, everything just vanished. 
And when people are like, well, hey, where, you know, where'd they go? Where, where is all this stuff? It, it reappeared. And in this happening, you know, one of these things started to look at one of the little boys. And this little boy began screaming, like, in, in terror. Which, and when he started doing that, this thing then supposedly pulled out this long, like, kind of wand-looking thing and pointed it at him, which then the boy disappeared. <laughs> then everyone claims that this thing and this walking box or whatever got back on this, uh, this circle ship and then just vanished. And after it vanished, the boy reappeared. And uh, they were showing patterns that were made in the grass, like all these ripply, like kind of vibration looking things in the grass. And supposedly where this thing had landed, the soil had turned rock hard. And uh, all these all these children were taken and you know told to draw what they see. And every single picture came out looking the, like hmm. identical, looking like the same thing. It's just creepy stuff, that is you know. Bizarre. I've never heard of that. Before. I hadn't either, but uh, it's worth looking into. And that's again uh, Vornesh. That's V O R O N E Z H. And you know, UFO people, you know, people who are into this kind of stuff, probably this is probably. Oh yeah, of course. I've heard you that didn't story know about that one. Yeah, you dumbass. <laughs> but uh, I didn't. And uh, very talk creepy. about ufology one hundred and one. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'm going to look into that a little bit more. But uh, yeah, that's really all I have. No, uh, no super scary stories, but uh, stuff that. Supposedly might be real, might not be real. And that's just the thing. You don't know. Probably I'm, not, but God, I'm going to need if. a little more proof oh, personally, yeah. I think. <laughs> but it's always fun to let your imagination wander, especially this time of year. I don't usually go on the word of others. <laughs> oh. Okay, Captain thinks for himself over here. <laughs> Unless I'm in immediate danger, I might be like, okay, yeah. Sure. All right, do you guys have any other uh, creepy stories you want to tell before we move on? I got one super quick thing. Yeah, go super for it. Super quick creepy thing. This is just something I, I was big into, like, exoplanets and things like that. I was really obsessed with this concept of Earth-like worlds outside the solar system. We know very little, but uh, I read something about it. It's, it's the Gliese system. It's the name of the star, Gliese 45b, or some such numeric designation. I can never remember. And supposedly, it has two or three habitable Earth-like planets orbiting it. There's really? A, yeah, there's a red dwarf star, I believe it was. One of them is huge. They call it a super Earth, where it's tidal locked with the star. So one side is always facing the star. The other side is always facing, you know, the void. So one side has constant day. The other has constant exactly. night. Exactly. Yeah. So it's Weird. burning on one side. Yeah. Just like our moon. Our moon is tidal locked with us. Really? I yeah, didn't know that. That's why there's a dark side of the moon. It's because we're always seeing the same face of the moon. I did not know that. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I learned something today. Thank right? you. <laughs> yeah. Astronomy. Well, uh. They say there's a habitable band where one side's burning, one side's frozen, but in the center, the temperatures even out where maybe, maybe it could support life. Like the equator. Yeah, yeah, exactly. An equatorial band. Mm -hmm. There's another planet where um, they theorize conditions might be right for plant life, right? But the atmosphere of this planet, the composition of gases and elements is such that only infrared light can make it to the surface. So if this place can sustain plant life, those plants needing to draw their energy through photosynthesis would be jet black. Oh. The only color that could absorb that infrared light mm. and draw nutrients from it. Just the idea of a blood red planet with black plants on the surface. Wow. I think I went there in No Man's Sky. Yeah, you probably did. <laughs> <laughs> Something about that terrifies me. What kind of life would develop in a world like that? I think know? it would be a bunch of, uh, what's the, the 
little shop of horrors. <laughs> yeah, the Audrey Fing twos. Yeah. Yeah. Bunch yeah. of little pitch black Audreys running around mm-hmm. cannibalizing. <laughs> That's the name. Singing their little show tune numbers. It's crazy. It's crazy to think about what can be out there. I know. It's not supernatural or anything, but it just creeps the hell out of me, you know? I don't know. The whole UFO uh, stuff and secret visitors and stuff is just <laughs> as creepy, if not more, than the supernatural to me. Anal I, probes. It's, it's, it's always the UFO movies that creep me out way more oh, than the man. supernatural movies. Like when Signs first came out. Mm, yeah. Yes. That was, messed with me. That was a rough watch That for messed a with the first me. couple times. Seeing the silhouette of that thing standing on the... On the uh, top of the barn yeah. and going back to uh, what you were saying earlier in the episode about uh, paranormal activity and how the home home footage aspect of it is what yeah. made it seem so scary the there's simplicity a scene, of it right there's a scene in that movie where there's a news reporter saying you know Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix and uh, the call can oh I know exactly whatever. what you're talking about they were watching a news report and like you know this footage might be disturbing it shows the little kid's birthday party and everyone's being drawn inside and they're all yeah, looking out yeah. the window and you see this creature just walk just really quick across the alley. Oh my god, that messed up. Yeah. And when you take that scene by itself, it lo- I mean, it almost looks kind of cheesy. It's just like a dude right. in a costume. He's like, boop, there he is. He just bigfoots through the camera. Right. But I think the the setup of that scene it ratchets up the tension so much you become susceptible to that being scary. Right. You know, and I think that's the success of a scene like that is that you, you got to break down the person's defenses to make something because you have to let yourself be frightened. Right. right. Mm-hmm. If it's not a jump scare. You have to be consciously susceptible to fear, right? In a movie, anyway, you know, when it's not like a survival response. You know, and I've I've told people how that movie's messed with me in the past. I'm like, are you kidding me? That was a stupid movie. But I think uh, another thing that really uh, resonated with me was the fact that, like I said before, I lived out in the boonies, and that movie <laughs> happens right in the middle of you know huge cornfields. That shit is real, and like, that's where I grew up, yeah. surrounded by cornfields. So watching that, going home and hearing the corn wrestling in the wind, you're like, oh, safe. I'm getting hell inside. <laughs> yeah, and that's not happening. But uh, yeah, uh, the fourth kind, another one I always talk about. That oh, always, I've got to see that. Song. Always messed with me. Yeah, even it, it still creep you out, even knowing it's bullshit. But watch it because good Halloween movie. Was it was it Fire in the Sky where they had that elaborate like alien dissection human experiment thing where they brought someone to their ship. They put, like, some thin skin over them, started drilling into their head. Oh, no, I don't know. It was was gruesome. Yeah, the aliens were these. They looked all amazing. They were, like, geriatric, like little old men with blank-looking faces. Just, they restrained this guy and just started drilling into the top of his head. (sighs) Crazy. Well, thank you. I've never seen the movie itself, but I've seen (laughs) that scene, yeah. Well, hopefully some of these stories have given you guys the willies. Maybe you lose a few so. hours of sleep tonight <laughs> yeah. uh, thinking of uh, Candle Cove. Or a jumping Cove. off point to find some more shit that's going to keep you up at night. Well, get you to surf on the internet and scare yourself <laughs> yeah. while you're reading. I was also going to say, next time you're flipping through the TV and come across a, a channel of static, you know, let let the Candle Cove story come to you. But I don't <laughs> think static channels really exist anymore. No, it no, just switches to a blue screen yeah. or something. Yeah. Lucky, lucky kids nowadays yeah, don't yeah. have the, the yeah, terrors no of a blank idea. station, right? <laughs> watching Poltergeist. What is that she's watching? <laughs> Back in our day, it was static. All right, everyone. With that behind us, let's just move right on to our first guest. All right, everyone. And now joining us today, award-winning author of the prose novella, The Sadist Bible, Nicole Cushing. Thanks so much for being with us today, Nicole. Great to be here. And happy Halloween to you. Are you a Halloween fan yourself? Oh, I am a Halloween addict. <laughs> I would say so looking at this project. You're in good company. I think. <laughs> right. 
So can you tell the listeners a little bit about the Sadist Bible? And then after you do that, we'll talk a little bit about how it came to be. Sure. Uh, the Sadist Bible is a novella that I wrote really in response to what I would call a fever dream kind of experience that I had down in New Orleans a few years ago. I was actually I was at the World Horror Convention uh, that was being held down there, and I was kind of hanging out uh, on the pool, but the pool was on the rooftop of the hotel. So I was Ooh. there, and I was just kind of relaxing, and I, I swear I was under no chemical enhancement at the time. <laughs> uh, but I had, like, this just this uh, fever dream kind of experience, this uh, daydreamy kind of vision of a uh, really ugly, hideous uh, supernatural realm uh, where of... Uh, bizarre imagery and, and violence. And, uh, and I knew that I, uh, needed to write about that. So I came back home and I started to write the, the story and it's really, um, about, uh, two women in the Bible belt. Um, uh, probably the main character, if I had to identify one is a closeted lesbian in the Bible belt named, uh, Ellie and, uh, her, uh, experience chatting on the internet with uh, a younger woman in uh, Virginia uh, named Lori. And uh, it's about, you know, their attempt to have a rendezvous where they, they meet with on a, a social networking site uh, where there's a group and, and this group specializes in helping people find a suicide partner. And uh, so their plan is they're going to get together, have mind blowing sex and then uh, kill themselves. But uh, Lori has uh, has a secret, and uh, and what happens uh, with that connection to Lori opens doors that uh, uh, Ellie has no idea even exist, and doors to this hideous supernatural realm, this place of of great uh, ugliness and agony, and and uh, wonder, and uh, and uh, um, kind of uh, spiritual dizziness uh, that I mentioned before. So it's a it's a book about. Um, the ugliness of uh, uh, that can afflict uh, sexuality and spirituality. It's about the ugliness of hierarchy uh, in, in sexuality and, and spirituality. It's uh, it's about uh, definitely grief and loss. It's about what happens when uh, you have a um, a kind of broken, traumatized person become entangled in a broken, sexually repressed person. Um, so uh, yeah, that's the Sadist Bible, and it's it's along the same lines, the same feel as a lot of my other work too. So I'm really pleased to be working with Zero One Publishing on uh, this Kickstarter that we're doing to uh, to bring the print edition to fruition. As right now we have a uh, we have an ebook, of course, but we're wanting to get a really snazzy print edition out there, and that's the the current project. And that's going well. By the time anyone's uh, hearing this, it will have just ended October twenty second. Yep. But um, yep. yeah, we can uh, still help direct people your way, and uh, in the meantime, still definitely yep. uh, tweet about it for sure. Yep. Um, so I'm very intrigued about these uh, this this vision you saw. Now, was it something like, well, one, not only the vision, but two. Yeah, I, I checked out the preview of the book online, and it was just uh, some dialogue of the characters going back and forth. I cannot wait to see the secret uh, Lori has and uh, the correlation between the vision you had and what we've uh, seen thus far. This vision you saw before you, I mean, was it like a, was it like a portal opening up? I mean, can you? I'm I'm so curious about like what was this like. 
Well, this, I have these experiences um, probably about maybe once a year or so when I'm, when I'm in a relaxed state kind of in between waking and sleep, sleepiness. So I don't actually believe that there's anything supernatural going on. Uh, I just think that um, my, uh, I had this imagination that uh, can go into overdrive and, and it's kind of uh, grows out of the fertilizer of a particularly uh, interesting religious upbringing. And so um, as a result, it, I was just sitting by the pool and, and it's, uh, you know, this imagery of, of people who are broken, literally broken and angels who are broken. And, and so angels who are missing limbs and, and, uh, and, and angels that are copulating with each other and devouring each other. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the fiery images in this and, and kind of a, a pool of, uh, of uh, angels and and uh, and demons uh, having a, uh, a a bestial romp uh, in in a pool like place, but it wasn't wasn't just a pool. Wow. Uh, yeah, these these are the things that come to me. <laughs> you know, other people are other people are probably thinking about what uh, you know what what the Orioles are doing or what the or, or what the, how about that know, weather? Uh, what what. what yeah, or or what the uh, uh, you know the um, I guess the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are doing or something like that, but uh, but I you know sometimes I that's where a lot of my creativity comes from and and so that's you know one of the reasons I love the small press is you know imagine if I gave that pitch to a literary agent <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know I mean <laughs> you know that's that you know they're not going to be you know that's not something that. Uh, uh, New York publishing gets really excited about in terms of the inspiration for books. They want something a little safer. So that's one of the reasons I love the small press is that, you know, these kinds of stories that appeal to neglected audiences uh, really can find their niche this way. And, and that's what I'm interested in. I'm, I'm not interested in in writing according to the typical formula, you know, the hero's journey or whatever, um, you know, I'm really more interested in, fo you know, following the passion of of those kinds of daydreams. Or, or sometimes I have a nightmare, and uh, the nightmare triggers an image, and I can't write a story around a nightmare because the nightmare, by definition, lacks the coherence that a story needs to have. But I can take a particularly visceral image out of a nightmare and I can use that as the inspiration for a story or a book. I've certainly done that a number of times too. So, uh, I always joke and say, I'm, I'm only half joking when I say that I don't mind nightmares because nightmares are research for someone like me. <laughs> right. And you know, it, it's excellent that you found this outlet for your particular type of creativity to know that you can bring these stories to the table that are very much you and in many ways kind of rejected by a lot of other sensibilities, but, but you know, you have a place where you can make them red. I imagine that must be a really good feeling. Yeah, and there's folks that are hungry for it too. It's I would count uh, myself among those people who's hungry for <laughs> weird, morbid, you know, tales that, that, that aren't afraid to push on these dark subjects. And, you know, at the risk of inviting a comparison, You've probably heard before, and if so, are probably tired of. I get like a strong, like Clive Barker sort of vibe, and I mean that in the most complimentary way. I'd say with like the ease of bringing up these these sexual and spiritual aspects of the story, and and talking about the darker elements of each. I, I, I think that's excellent. I think there's a lot of interesting material there that it just isn't touched on enough. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I get that. I do get that that comparison quite a bit, and and I'm honored by it. Obviously, I, I've uh, I actually the stuff of Clive Barker's that I really uh, dig the most are uh, some of his plays, uh, you know, which are neglected, but you can find them in, in you know uh, transcribed into print. You know, they have the scripts for his plays, and uh, I actually saw one. Uh, that was uh, playing uh, in Louisville, of all places. I live in southern Indiana, just across the border from Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, there was a small theater in Louisville that was putting on a production of Clive Barker's The History of the Devil, which if you ever if you ever have a chance to either read that play or even better to watch it being performed, or even best, do both, read the play first and then go see it, as I did, uh, it is such a powerful experience. And I think... Uh, you know, it's interesting. I've had a chance to to talk to Doug Bradley, who played uh, Pinhead. I did an oh, interview with oh, him. Wow. Yeah, I interviewed him uh, about the early days of Clive Barker in the uh, Clive Barker as an actor, because he he was acting in some of those plays early, and uh, and about what that was that scene was all about. It was interesting. They were kind of uh, underground theater people. And uh, it really is fascinating to have that whole the whole energy that was part of that. And of course, uh, you know, Hellraiser is um, one of my favorite horror movies. I'm uh, the right first, there the with first, you the on first that. one, you know, the, the first one. I don't care for the sequels, but the first Hellraiser, if if it had just been left alone and to stand by on its own <laughs> as as a as a lovely little horror movie, uh, I think it would have been ideal because I think the sequels and the franchises tend to drain some of the uh, energy from them, but uh, it's just an exquisite film, and uh, and and really avant-garde. I think that's one of the things that people don't understand about horror is people think that this is a celebration of mayhem, and uh, and really for me, it's a way of uh, addressing things like trauma and mental illness, and and uh, it's a way of. Um, uh, of mourning a lot of that stuff or, you know, and, and at the same time, maybe capturing an element of wonder about it too, but, but really reflecting, um, you know, these traumatic experiences and how they kind of bleed into the unreal, how the, how the feeling of going through a traumatic experience is unreal and has an element of unreality to it. And, uh, and then, you know, bringing that to bear in the fiction. So you need that fantastical framework to Mm -hmm. cover a subject that people don't openly talk about. It sort of opens the door by this sort of in a macabre way, you can broach these subjects that people don't discuss. And I, I, I yeah, totally. It's, um, that's one way of, of kind of encapsulating it. It's like with, uh, you know, Rod Serling uh, was trying to write very serious, um, you know, television films about about things like racism and and uh, other issues that he was concerned about in the 50s, and and he kept on getting uh, uh, stymied by the network executives. So he decides to do the Twilight Zone, where he basically can do the same thing, uh, except doing, doing it under the guise of uh, of science fiction. I think for me, horror. I mean, it's not that I'm trying, you know, it's not that I necessarily go and say, okay, I want to write about this, you know, very serious subject, and I'm going to use horror to kind of, you know, open the door to that. It's more that um, my imagination and the way my mind works is just 
you know, oriented towards towards these kinds of things. I mean, I, you know, I, when I was six years old, uh, you know, I uh, I went to my grandfather's funeral, and not knowing that it was kind of taboo to go up there and touch the corpse, I went up to there and and I patted him on the hand, and I felt how damn cold he was, and um, and it was one of those things where you know I don't feel like. I really sought out horror so much as horror sought out me. I mean, after you have an experience when you're six years old, you know, what can you really do after that? Uh, you know, where, where can you really go other than horror? And, and certainly horror was in the pop culture back then. This was in the late 70s, mm. uh, early 80s, really the, the heyday of people like Stephen King and, and you know, c- catching television shows like Night Gallery and reruns and this kind of thing. So, um, so for me, I think horror uh, basically was the only look of the world, the only examination of the world that made sense um, because no one else was talking about things like death. You know, after, after my grandfather died, um, I was given some canned answers about everything. But, um, you know, at the same time, there were things I still had a lot of questions about that and a lot of the answers didn't seem satisfactory even then. And uh, and so for me, it's it's really uh, related to tragedy. Um, you know, there are not to get too highfalutin about this, but it's like you could call you know the ancient uh, play Medea a horror film. You know, it's something that's like, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, or horror, horror play. You know, there you could you can look at all of these kinds of tragedies, and really, what horror seems to me is it's tragedy with an added sense of unreality to it. And there's so an in all of my work, I try to bring that in. That. I'm sorry, what did you say? I said there's there's a sort of honesty underlying all of. Yeah, exactly, honesty, and and but you know, one of the reasons why I think horror will probably always be a niche uh, field to some degree is, um, you know, it takes a certain kind of person who's willing to. Uh, in their free time, uh, expose themselves to this kind of thing. Someone who's been to Catholic school, more or less. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's amazing. Uh, The creative process for everyone is so different and so amazing. That's awesome. So people can check out the Sadist Bible on Amazon.com right now. You said in like a digital format and probably through uh, Zero One Publishing. Are are there any other mediums uh, people can get this book in? Amazon, Barnes and Noble, that sort of thing, uh, and uh, and of course, you know, we're talking after the point of the the Kickstarter, so that won't be available. But I have other books available too. Um, uh, my novel, Mr. Suicide, won the Bram Stoker Award uh, in uh, earlier this year, and that's available uh, through the usual uh, channels, either online or. Uh, in your local bookstore. Uh, if it's not there, you can special order it. And uh, and then my uh, short story collection, The Mirrors, is also available on Amazon. Or again, if, if it's not in your bookstore, you can go ahead and order it. So, uh, yeah, so I, I, I love doing what I do. I love Halloween. Uh, it's a glorious time of year. And uh, I'm so grateful to be able to uh, tell people about all the spooky things happening in fiction at this time of year. And I was just going to say one more time, what a perfect guest to have on our Halloween episode. So, no, thank you for being a part of our Halloween episode. And we're going to put uh, as many links and uh, contacts up on our webpage as we can to help direct people your way. Cool. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Nicole, and happy Halloween to you. 
Happy Halloween! All right, everyone. And again, you can check out everything Nicole has going on at NicoleCushing.com. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Nicole Cushing. And uh, you can pick up a copy of the Sadist Bible at 01publishing.com. And their Kickstarter we were talking about uh, has successfully been funded. So here in the near future, you should be able to get a beautiful uh, copy, like dig- uh, actual print of and the book. you should. Yeah, absolutely. I make, I'm very excited to uh, read it myself. Yeah, right up my alley. Yeah, It's exactly. got all the things that I look for in this kind of story. You seem very stimulated oh, during man. the interview. <laughs> well, let me see. Creepy religious overtones, check. Uh, otherworldly vision trips, check. Yeah, it's got all the great tastes. Exactly. That tastes great together. He got it in there. Oh, look shit. at this guy. You thought I was done, but it's I'm been back. A couple. Oh, yeah, I know, right? boy. you got to bide your time sometimes. you got to make him want it. Yeah, I was wanting <laughs> Sorry, it. I'll feed you baby birds. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. And for our final interview for the Halloween episode, the actress who portrayed one of the best-known ghosts out there, Slimer from Ghostbusters 2 and Lady Slimer from Ghostbusters Answer the Call, the 2016 movie, we welcome Robin Shelby. We had a great time talking with her. Sure did. And uh, I think you're going to have a great time listening to the episode. So without further ado, here is our interview with Robin Shelby. <laughs> Robin, I want to thank you so much for taking time to uh, talk with us on our Halloween episode. What an honor to talk with uh, the person who brought Slimer to life. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Happy Halloween. Oh, thanks. Hey, you too. To you. Are you a big fan of the holiday? You know, actually, I kind of am. Um, just I'm a, I'm a geek and I love Halloween anyway, but that's actually the, the day that um, I pretty much met and started talking to my husband was on Halloween. Oh, wow. Okay. So that so, has even more meaning for you guys. It's a first date kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's definitely pretty special. I didn't know if you maybe uh, slipped into your Slimer outfit and went and troll in the neighborhood <laughs> at all. or. <laughs> I know, I, I've never been Slimer for Halloween. It's kind of a, it's too special for me to do that. If you're you know good what at I mean? something, never do it for free, right? And, and <laughs> not only that, nobody could ever make a costume as good as the one that ILM made. There's no way. Yeah, that There's was no pretty way. neat. Man, they really know their business when it comes to practical <laughs> effects. Mm-hmm. That they do. That they do. So I'm kind of, a, kind of a snob. I'm kind of a snob when it comes to Slimer costumes. So <laughs> no, I, I haven't done that. That one's beneath me. Hey, kid coming to the door. That's a terrible costume, kid. <laughs> you get your act together if you want some candy. Schooling a five-year-old. You should have seen the one I wore yeah. back then. <laughs> I've sent many kids crying from my door. That's all I'll say. Uh, I doubt <laughs> I'm it. I'm teasing. I'm kidding. <laughs> I if you don't teach them to earn the candy, they're just going to phone it in year after they'll, year. Yeah. Exactly. They'll just expect it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man all right well let's get right into it let's go back to where does your journey and in, into acting begin I, I was about 11 um and just, i'll make a very long story short my parents were kind of getting divorced and i i needed something to keep myself occupied and um there was a children's theater down the street that i got into and um fell in love with it immediately and pretty much that was the beginning of the end as far as me being an actor it's just fell in love with it right away that's cool i never did anything like that did you guys do any like drama or anything in the school no no until i was like in high school i got interested in drama but it didn't hit me very early like yeah by the time i was uh, getting interested in it, it was far too late i think i was already out of school like, <laughs> yeah. oh, man, oh. you guys want to put on a play <laughs> <laughs> get the shower curtain up. <laughs> that living in ohio doesn't help the whole thing right. yeah yeah that's true so um i've been listening to uh, some other interviews you've been on and uh reading some interviews that were done with you and 
it was awesome to find out that your journey into Ghostbusters started uh, with work you had done on Willow. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I never, I wouldn't be talking to you now about Ghostbusters if it hadn't been for the opportunity that I was given on Willow. Um, they needed somebody. Uh, if you've seen the movie, I, I personally, I love the movie. I think it's really underrated and, and underseen by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's it's a beautiful story. I think it's right, great. It's a cult um, classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, I played the troll. When he goes on a bridge, there's a troll that gets eaten by a two-headed Hydra monster. <laughs> I remember I, really liking that scene. The effects were so cool, especially for the time. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail your story. No, <laughs> That's no, my favorite okay. bit. So. And I got torn into two bits and eaten by a Hydra monster. That was my introduction to ILM, was playing a troll that got killed. I wish so. I could put that on my resume. Yeah. Torn into <laughs> eaten by Hydra. Oh, my resume is looking really day. weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that is freaking cool. So then how did that lead into Ghostbusters then? Well, they had already, about, you know, go a year later, um, they were looking for someone. Uh, they had lost the guy that... that was going to play Slimer through scheduling. He, he couldn't do it. And um, they're like, okay, we need somebody who has got some experience in this, who's got a lot of energy, who is about this size, who can act. And we need to find somebody. And, and Ned Gorman, the guy who actually sort of hired me on Willow, said, well, I think I might know the right person. Why don't we call her in? And, uh, and they called my agent in San Francisco, and they called me into ILM, and I got the job later that day. Dawn, who you know. I've heard so many stories like that. It's like, yeah, I went and auditioned. Before I got home, I had a message saying, yeah, yeah you yeah. got the part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What a great and feeling. Here's the crazy part. On Willow, um, I told this story before, but to me, it's it's pretty it, it's pretty special. It's like the, the day that I woke up on my... I, I worked two days, and on the first day, um, I woke up with 103 fever, throwing up every 15 oh, minutes. Oh, my God. I, big stomach flu and, like, feeling so horrible. My father took the day off, um packed me up in his car, drove me to ILM, stayed with me the whole day. Um, at that point, my stomach had calmed down enough. Keep in mind, I'm hanging from a bar and swinging onto pads. Oh, wow. Um, and with 103-degree fever and holding my stomach together, hoping I didn't throw up in front of everybody, which I didn't. I, I ended up actually keeping it together. But Wow, um, that's that's incredible. Magic of stage health. <laughs> <laughs> but had my, da- had my dad not pushed me and said, you know what, I'm going to take you and, uh, you know, I'll take care of you. Let's get in the car. Let's go. Um, if I had just called in saying I'm really sick, they would have gotten somebody else. And I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been history that I would have been called in for Ghostbusters because they would have had no idea what I could do. Wow. So that try to so get fun. yourself to work when you can. I think that's the moral of the story. <laughs> power through the illnesses <laughs> exactly exactly so when you took on this role were you already familiar with the franchise were you already a fan of the first movie or was it new to you no i was a huge fan um uh, you know i was in high school when the original came out i i, I really was a, a, almost a, a kid working on ghostbusters 2 N- not much beyond even being able to have a drink i mean i was pretty young um but yes, I was a huge fan, and to kind of take on that character, being kind of inexperienced at the time and young, it, it, I tried not to feel the pressure. It's like because I knew it was an iconic character that people loved. There's a little pressure on my shoulders, but oh, if absolutely. I went into, I couldn't, I couldn't think about that because that would get in the way, and I wouldn't. Have, I just needed to go listen to what they wanted and have fun, and not think about 
that, that it was a bigger character than I could ever imagine. Um, I just had to go and just have a good time with it. Yeah, yeah, you were the uh, first, you know, real-life representation of the character since the character's evolution through the cartoon, you know? And the, right. Uh, the, the first movie, he was just a hand puppet, right? I believe it was more like... A, if I, I wasn't there, obviously, but from the photos I've seen, it was more like a puppet that somebody could kind of put their body into. Um, Mark Brian Wilson is, is the, the gentleman who was... Um, running the the arms and inside the costume of the original Slimer, and they had they, they did have like a puppet. They had kind of a half life size model. They had different sizes, I believe, that they that they uh, that they worked with. Um, but it wasn't a full body costume animatronic like um, like the Slimer that they built for Ghostbusters Two. It was quite different. Yeah, that's Basically really how that movie magic works. It, it really is. never knew that. I always it really thought it was just a little. Milk jug size thing. (laughs) 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 Oh man, that's awesome. So, with the evolution of the character, I'm assuming that's why they decided, you know, we need an actual actor or actress in this case in in this character, you know, bringing it to life, being a better representation of it. Is is that why they did that, you think? Or I'm assuming that that's why they they put me through my paces in the audition to make sure that I could take direction, that I could I could uh, give them what they needed for the character because I think there was some acting involved, but it wasn't only just it wasn't just me. It was there were puppeteers too that that we all had to be in sync working at the same time. Um, there were puppeteers running the eyes, the nose, the oh, lips, wow. uh, the crazy. cheeks. Every piece of that face could move, and puppeteers we had to work together and time it out perfectly. Um, so the expression was made at the right time and I was hitting the right mark at the right time. And it was, it was like a, it was like a dance like between six people trying to get that character to work. So I certainly, I don't take credit for all of it. There's a lot of people involved that made that, that made that work. You know, that's just extraordinary to me. I love practical effects and, and seeing you know, there's, there's just something about having a person sort of give it that, that it's almost like it gives it a soul you know it's yeah. not just mm-hmm. a prop it's not just a costume mm-hmm. you've got these people uh, people controlling affecting it it's like, the way you described it as a dance i just think that's extraordinary they can take something like that and bring it to life in that way right and there is some some emotion some life to it that that right. you, you somehow lose it when it's all cgi and no human involvement whatsoever i believe um you know, I, I just think there's something to be said about it. Like you said, somebody living, breathing, putting life into it. I think, I think it definitely, it's it's unique and it adds something that you just don't get otherwise. It's a shame that we're sort of. It seems like cinema is moving away from that. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, I I understand, and it's not like there aren't talented like graphics artists out there. Oh but, yeah, absolutely. But there's just something right. special about the practical stuff that you can't replicate. I totally agree. So that suit that you had to wear, I mean, we saw there's like footage <laughs> online of uh, you, uh, like, I don't know if it's rehearsal or if you're actually doing shots for the movie, but uh, yeah. that thing looks heavy yeah, as all get yeah, out. That's what I, was I mean, did you have back problems? You have to see a chiropractor <laughs> after that or? No, you know what? I, it, it, that was probably not so much the heat. Of course, it was really hot. But oh, the, yeah. look, what, what you're mentioning, the weight of it was probably the bigger issue that I had to deal with while we were shooting. And keep in mind, I was... Most days we were working 13 to 15 hour days, um, and and of course we took a you know we took lunch and every about every hour we took like a, they could take the head off and I would just sit and be able to have a sip of water and like get some air and 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 kind of you know get myself back to normal but um, 
Yeah, it, definitely the, the, the weight of the head because there's so much involved with it. Right. There are a lot of metal and servos and wires and, and latex. It's like, I'm guessing, I wish I could have weighed it. I should have weighed it. Um, <laughs> I could, I, it's probably like the head itself is probably like 35 pounds. Wow. And, and, and I'm, I'm four foot 11. Uh, you know, it's like, it, 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 I really, after a certain period of time, it, it definitely, your back started hurting. And even with the head, they had like this, um, it was like a leather, like a face plate that would that was made to the my shape of, of my face. So when I would move the head, it would move perfectly with me. And even that would start to hurt. Like I, I feel it against my my cheeks and my nose because constantly pushing for oh, 13 man. hours a day. Um, but but you know what? Honestly, I, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat. It's like it was so amazing to work with these people, and I was learning so much, and I would I, I wouldn't take it back for the world. Now you mentioned all the hours you uh, spent in the suit, you know, and in the final product of the movie, we don't get to see a whole lot of screen time of Slimer, and I do understand there have there were extra scenes that didn't make the final cut. I haven't mm-hmm. been able to really find anywhere. Can you describe any of these scenes at all? Well, the one that I was I was most notable to me that was missing. Um, there's a scene, you know, when he picks them up, uh, picks Lewis up on the bus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, he actually, there's a scene that Slimer drops him off and gets off the bus with him, wanting to go with him. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, and he wants to go with him to, to see what he can do. And and, he, and and Lewis says, no, you know, you can't go with me, but hey, maybe we can go bowling sometime. And, uh, <laughs> and then Slimer, Slimer licks the whole half of his face and then uh, turns around and flies off. But And that was like the whole back and forth between... Lewis and and uh, and Slimer, I, it just it really worked. It's like that was one of the days. That we, at the end of the day, the whole crew just kind of stopped and clapped, and everybody was so happy with what they got. Um, and I was so bummed to see that removed. That's you know, such that, a, that, that interesting little bit of character. I'm not sure why they would get rid of something. Yeah, like exactly. That. Especially after he and was it, such a big part of the cartoon, too. Yeah. Right, right. And it kind of explains why he was on the bus anyway at all. Why he was why he was picking Lewis up on the bus. <laughs> Well, he was he's taken him there to go with him, and he gets turned away, but he goes with him to help. Um, and it does kind of add a little bit to the character of Slimer. So, and I just wanted to see how it all came together and what it looked like, because I, I felt like it would look pretty amazing with everybody's work on it. And um, I was bummed. I was bummed that that got cut. There's a few other smaller things that got cut, um, but like to me, that was the first thing at the end of the film. I was like the most bummed about. That was like the scene that I was really missing. Yeah, it sounds like an awesome scene. And come on, Rick Moranis. Yeah. <laughs> you go to cut Rick Moranis, come on. Louis Tully. My favorite. I adore him as an actor. I think he's he's so amazing. Oh, wow. yeah, brilliant. I wish he'd come back. I agree. With the evolution of Slimer and, uh, you know, seeing, seeing him in Ghostbusters 2 as a child was crazy. Um, and I, I guess I've always had questions about Slimer. Like, uh, and maybe you guys have opinions on this, too. I always wonder what Slimer was as a real person, what he was like. Like, uh, you know, was he the type to go bowling or uh, I don't know. I think if he was ever human, he was probably an avid bowler. Think so? That makes sense to me. That just feels right. Yeah. I would say probably died of a heart attack. Stands to reason. Yeah. Yeah. An avid bowler and I think an avid like connoisseur of fine wine and food. Oh, absolutely. That's what I think. That's what I think. Maybe he was a laid-back mafia don. Ooh. There's Ooh. A, oh, there you go. <laughs> For some I reason, they I... still called him Slimer. No one's really <laughs> sure why. Even in life. <laughs> he never cleaned uh, Max, up after himself. Max Landis actually wrote kind of a fun little 
this is what I this is what I think I would do for Ghostbusters three way back when, <laughs> and he kind of had a history of Slimer. Um, I'll see if I can find it, but I'll post it. But it, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. It was very cool. I would love I have to yeah. see that. Yeah. Yes, that would oh, be, be awesome. Cool. Get some uh, <laughs> a fan film together to bring that to life. <laughs> there you go. Kickstarter. <laughs> Another question about Ghostbusters 2 I have that I don't, maybe you won't be able to answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. Did Bobby Brown's kid brother ever get that proton pack he was wanting? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I would not be able to help you out with that answer. Uh, I wish. I'm hoping, hoping he did. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. When it's anytime I see Bobby Brown in that movie, I just say, Egon was pretty stern with it about being not a toy. This is not a toy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So I've also heard you say that it's only been within the past few years, maybe four or five years, that you're actually getting recognition for the playing the role of uh, Slimer. Is that right? I did. I did my first convention about, I want to say it was five years ago. Okay. Five, five, six years ago. It was, uh, it was Whorehound Cincinnati. Um, and that was the very first time. It's just, it's recently that I, I say within the last eight years, people started realizing there was a person that, that was inside that costume and started learning about, um, you know, who, who I was and what I had done. And then I just kind of got hooked up with, the fandom and and everybody is so wonderful. I'm so glad that 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 happened because Ghostbusters fans are truly they're the best. I love them. I really do. And you've been uh, in it, or like uh, accepted by many different Ghostbuster chapters from around the world, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm an honorary member of quite a few, and 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 believe me, it's like I. I don't take that, you know, too lightly. I think it's pretty cool when they do that. I'm pretty touched when that happens. I've uh, only ever had exposure with the Columbus yeah. Ghostbusters yeah. here, and they are just fantastic people. I don't know any of them by name, mm-hmm. but, I mean, I've at cons or at the comic book store when they have events, we always uh, run into them, and they seem like they're always doing really good work. I, I want to be an honorary <laughs> Ghostbuster. They're right on with their... <laughs> Their props and suits and stuff. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, the cars, the suits, nope. the proton packs, everything. It's crazy. It's hard to overstate the cultural impact of these movies. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's what they expected around the time they were being made. They were just like, yeah, let's create something people will remember forever. You know, or was yeah. it, <laughs> right. just, I don't know. It's it's pretty incredible. Right. I'm not sure when they were when they were filming the first Ghostbusters that they would realize it would have such the impact that it, that it had. I can't and imagine for, they would have. Yeah. The stripes and didn't really stick years. us around as long as it has. Right. They were all in that one. All stripes. <laughs> I was like, what stripes are you talking about? You mean the movie stripes? Yeah, man. I forgot about that one. That's a good movie. And you uh, even were, you as yourself, made an appearance in the IDW Ghostbusters uh, comic. That was a huge surprise. And, and uh, a friend of mine who's also a Ghostbusters fan wrote me saying, I think this is you. <laughs> I said, no. He goes, no, really, seriously, I think it's you. And then I wrote um, I, I wrote them at IDW, and they're like, yeah, it's you. And, and, <laughs> really? And I, so you I, didn't even know. I, no, they didn't. I mean, I, I had no idea when it came out that, that that was being done, and I it was I was pretty honored. That's pretty cool. I've never ever been a part of a comic before, and to to be in that and to be in the Ghostbusters comic of all of them, uh, it, it was it was pretty cool. I'm pretty flattered that they did that. Well, that's really neat. I uh, I'm gonna have to find that episode now, just as a keepsake or that issue. I always call comics episodes. <laughs> I need to find that issue as a keepsake now. <laughs> That's awesome. So overall, what was all that uh, sudden exposure like? A little overwhelming, and in not a bad way. Um, I, like I said, the first one was Whorehound, where I met for the first time Ernie Hudson, Slavica Jovan, who played uh, Gozer, um, William Atherton, 
um, we all were there um, at kind of like a little Ghostbusters mini reunion kind of thing. But the funny part was, because of the work that I did, which is in front of a, a blue screen, everybody said, oh, how was the cast to work with? Technically, I didn't have to work with any of the cast because I was by myself in a special effects stage. Wow. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I got to meet a lot of the cast members, but not because it was due to shooting the film. It was due because of, of, of events or, or, or a con. You know, that, that's how I met the majority of the other, the other people. Now, you got uh, the chance once again to uh, not play Slimer, but Lady Slimer. Uh, I mean, we're starting yes. a Slimer family here. This is awesome. <laughs> Maybe next movie we'll get some Slimer babies, right. you know? That could be a cartoon. I'd watch Slimer. <laughs> Slimer babies? Yeah. Slimer family. <laughs> the Slimer. I love it. It's, it's, it's weird to play a character, then you could play your own love interest in the next films. I play <laughs> Slimer in one. It's, it's, I need therapy or something for that. I don't know. I can't think of any other actors who have done that. Same thing off the top of my head. You right. know what? It's it's unique. It's definitely unique that I play the male version of that character and then a female counterpart to that to that character. But so, do you have a yes, voice lined up for Junior Net yet? Or <laughs> hey, if it happens, I'm ready. Bring it on. Perfect. That's, I'll be there to watch it. I'll be there to watch it. So, how did this uh, come to be then, Lady Slimer? Last around, it was just before, kind of around Christmas time. Um, I'm at the computer, my husband's watching TV, and I get a Twitter message, a private message, and it was Paul Feig. Oh, and wow. he's like, hey, <laughs> hey, uh, I, have, I have a small role. I mean, it is small, but would you be interested in doing it? And I'm thinking to myself, um, yeah, hello, I'd love to. Why did you phrase that uh, as a question? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I screamed at the computer. I was really excited. And my husband's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I'm like, no, no, you got to check this out. Look at this. And then he read it and he was, what are you doing talking to me? Tell him you'll do it. Tell him you'll do it. Um, so I was really honored that it was really all Paul Feig. He reached out and, um, and I really hadn't talked to him prior to that. I'm not sure why he did that for me, but I'm so glad he did. And now I've obviously I've gotten to meet him and I totally respect the man. He's so seriously kind and wonderful. He's really a great, creative, wonderful person. I love him. I think he's great. The fact that he reached out to somebody he really didn't know personally, and um, I, I, I'm so grateful. I'm so happy that he did. He, he knows the fans want to see as many of those familiar mm -hmm. uh, people come back as, you know, that's awesome he reached out to you. Well, very cool. Yeah. We had fun uh, watching this movie, but I will say one of the biggest things from the Ghostbuster resurgence that I've been taking part in was the merchandise. Like seeing right. Ecto coolers <laughs> back on the shelves. Yes. Oh my God. I, I drank them till I couldn't drink them anymore. <laughs> I really did. And I, I'll never be the same. <laughs> <laughs> and I now finally actually own a Stay Puff Marshmallow Man figurine and a Slimer figurine. I, I've Yay. always wanted them since I was a kid and never could. So it was awesome to see them. Mer uh, merchandise come back so did you what about you do you have like a slimer room in your house like dedicated to slimer merch or anything like that i you know i i'm in an apartment um in los angeles and with all the stuff that i have there's a few things that are in until we get a bigger place what in boxes and storage i've got so many wonderful gifts and things that people have given to me and um one-of-a-kind things and different merchandise I've, I've got a ton of slimer stuff but i love it all i mean i, I wouldn't i wouldn't I wouldn't give it up. It's it's pretty cool. That's I just want I want a, like a huge display case, you know, one day soon that I can just put it all out for people to see. 
That would be cool. Right, like, next to your desk in your office, just like we have here. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Not that I have any of my own uh, figurines up there. One day. <laughs> we'll have One day. Day. That's what we'll do. <laughs> Candare podcast figurines. <laughs> what a sad day that'll be. Oh, man. Three guys sitting around a desk. <laughs> see pictures. I want to see pictures. Right. Oh. <laughs> there will be no articulation for realism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Now, there's another Ghostbusters project that's in the canon that I uh, did not know about until I was uh, researching for this interview uh, called uh, Cleaning Up the Streets, Remembering the Ghostbusters, that you yourself are a part of. And it, yes. it looked like it's, uh, I mean, from what I could derive from the trailer, just a documentary on the making of the movie. Can you tell us more about this? It's just um, interviews that they've been doing. It's actually it's, it's a, a cleaning up the town, remembering Ghostbusters, and it's it's a, a couple of people who who turned out to be friends of mine who, out of a labor of love, they've interviewed just about everybody. Um, and I know they'd still love to interview uh, Bill Murray, who's obviously a tough interview to get. Oh yeah, um, a very tough interview to get. Um, but yeah, it's it's basically, and they've interviewed people who are no longer with us. Um, you know, Harold Ramis. Uh, you know, and the list goes on. Michael Gross, um, all these people that are that are a huge part of the Ghostbusters fandom. That I think people are just going to eat it up when it's actually put together and 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 put out there for people to see. Just a lot of history about the the, the original film in Ghostbusters 2 and um, probably footage and things that nobody has ever seen uh, quite yet. So I mean, I, I think it's going to be pretty. It's going to be pretty great. It could even contain the uh, the uh, Rich, uh, Lewis Tully and Slimer scene. Yeah, I oh, don't yeah. think so. I don't think so. And even talking to to uh, Michael Gross, who produced the film, apparently it just it just it in time like the amount of time that the film had, they it was just too much. It was a scene that they didn't have to have that they could cut for in in, in interest of time, and it never got put together. In other words, what I shot and what what Rick Moranis shot never was put together by the special effects people. So oh. it's it, it's ever it's not even put together in the same location so you could see the scene together, which is bummer. And if ILM, if you're listening, if anyone there at ILM decides to put it together, that would be like absolutely incredible. I'd cool love to see that it. Be. Send it to Candare Podcast. <laughs> yeah. I know. Exclusive. I know. I know. Yeah. So, but, but, but it's going to definitely check it out. I'm not sure. I, I'm thinking they're hoping to get it out before the end of the year. That's what um, I was going to ask about because uh, it said yet this year just didn't have a, a release date on it. They're still trying. They're still wrapping up a few, um, a, a few odds and ends interviews that they wanted to get. Um, and I know that they've been editing like crazy. Um, putting the music together, so I'm I'm hoping soon. I can't wait to see it. Um, uh, what what little footage I've seen is pretty amazing, and I like I said, I think the fans are just going to go crazy over it. Awesome! I can't wait to see it. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. Pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Now, in doing my research for this interview, I also found out you were in some other pretty big '90s movies: uh, Adam's Family Values, Beverly Hills Cop Three, and Little Rascals. Yeah. What kind of work did you do on these movies? Yeah, actually, um, Little Rascals. I was a, a stunt person i've done a few films as i've done i've did the fantastics and uh and little rascals as a stunt person and realized pretty quickly i am not a stunt person <laughs> <laughs> i'm an actor and you have to have it in your blood to be a stunt person you you just have to you just have to live and breathe and 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 and, and just want to do it forever and I, it's just not my passion 
and you have to put yourself on the line. Although Little Rascals was a lot of fun, I have to admit. I was the, get this, I was a stunt person for Spanky in the go-kart races. Oh, wow, you're kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding, yeah. And so I got driven around and uh, and kind of got to scoot around the streets of Los Angeles in a go-kart uh, for it. So that, that, was, that was pretty cool. Man, how much fun that would be. Isn't it fun? Isn't it fun? Now, moving forward into some of your more current projects, you're going to be in a movie uh, called The Gloaming, which is a horror film, right? It's, it is. It, it's, it's, a, it's a horror short. Um, and it, it's, I think it just officially got completed, like with the special effects and everything. And I can't talk too much about it because it's not like in the, in the circuit yet, like the festival circuit. But um, it's definitely a paranormal thriller that, that I think it's, it's pretty exciting. And the writer is amazing. Her, her name is Helen Stringer, and she's so cool. Um, and she did such a great job. I've, I've been able to see a few cuts as she's been going, and I, I want it to be out there because it's really good. She did an amazing job with it. Well, that sounds like that's going to be really cool, and I really cannot wait to see that. So you'll have to let us know when that uh, is coming out. Yeah. Now, another project we found that uh, you've been a part of is a YouTube series called Far From the Tree. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yes. Um, it's, it's a series that um, we're, we're, we're kind of moving on to something new, but we love Far From the Tree is so much fun, and it's a def- another labor of love from us. Um, if you want to check it out and you want to see it, you can go to youtube.com slash series. And basically, there's 15 episodes, but they're very short. It's like they're anywhere between a minute and a half and five and a half minutes. So it's good for people with ADD because you don't have to watch that long. <laughs> but it's it's um it, it's kind of a dysfunctional family. I call it like uh, the office meets mama's family. It's very loosely based on on some craziness in in my family that but but magnified about five thousand times. So it's it's so much fun, and and my husband wrote and directed it. Um, I kind of created created it as far as came up with the idea. We sat together, and my husband just came up with some amazing ideas for scripts, and we shot them with some people that we adore as fellow actors. And I'm I'm really proud of it. It's definitely, you know, small budget, um, you know, you know, small crew, but it's 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 a lot of fun to watch. It's a lot of fun. And you said you're going to be moving on from this project now. Yeah, yeah. Far from the tree. Um, he wants to revisit it, but I think you know it's like it's it's been it's been like two years since since we've shot on Far from the Tree. So I'm thinking it's it's let's come up with something just as fun and a new idea and create it and 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 shoot something brand new. And and we we have kind of an idea that could be a lot of fun. I don't want to go into too much detail, but I could be playing kind of a a female cop on a stakeout. I'll just say that. So a little bit of a change of pace from far from the tree. Yeah. And it'll be, it'll be a comedy, but yeah. Yeah. So, um, so so we're definitely, we still want to keep creating and and that's what keeps us going too. It's like, sometimes you have to create your own work. You have to go out and, and, and write and produce and, and direct and shoot it and put it out there for people to see. Well, that's awesome. It sounds like you keep yourself pretty darn busy with all your different projects. It's better than sitting around waiting for for somebody to hire you, right? It's like you you go out and you create your own stuff and have fun doing it at the same time. So, Right from the mouth of a true pro. That's absolutely amazing. 
Well, Rob and I want to thank you for taking time to talk with us on our Halloween episode. And uh, we're going to put links up to your website, into your Twitter handle on our website and uh, get you as much exposure as we can for these upcoming projects you have. It's been an absolute honor and uh, it's just been surreal to talk with you. So uh, again, thank you so much and uh, happy Halloween to you. It's been a pleasure and thank you for having me. Everybody be safe trick-or-treating out there. All right, everyone. And again, that was our interview with actress Robin Shelby. Uh, what a fun time it was to talk with she her. She was fun. Yeah. What an honor. We've had someone from Ghostbusters yeah. on the show now. That's awesome. You can get closer. Yeah. <laughs> you can follow Robin on Twitter at actress R. Shelby and check out uh, what she's got going on at robinshelby.net. And uh, again, we're going to be having all of our guests' links and Twitter handles, all that stuff up on the website uh, for you to check out further. So, Jack, what do we have on the website? Go to candarepodcast.com where you can see show highlights, guest info, listen to the show, follow us on all our social media, visit the Wall of Heroes and see the Hall of Justice, or maybe the other way around. Check out the videos from our YouTube page. <laughs> and if you want to be a guest and promote your work, send us an email on our contacts page. And don't forget to find us on Twitter at CannedAirPod and on Instagram at Canned underscore Air. And people, we want to see your cans. Show us your cans. Contest going on right now to win a whole boatload of free comics. And all you have to do is go to the website or you can, I've made it as easy as going to the uh, Twitter. Just download the picture on there. It's you can print everywhere. out the, the label to the Canned Air can. Put it around a can in your pantry and take some pictures of it in cool locations and send it to us. Use the hashtag, here's my can. Thank no you. No punctuation, all one word. I would have forgotten that, so thank you. I'm here to help. But come on. You, you're just taking a picture for a ton. What was it, like uh, 12, 13 free comics, a t-shirt, like that, a bunch yeah. of stickers? Come on. Come on. All right. I don't know what else to say other than <laughs> come on. Forget about it. <laughs> Is there anything else this, uh, this week, guys? I want to believe. I want to believe too, but I don't know if I did. If if there was something and I saw it, I don't think I'd want to believe. Then. Exactly. So. <laughs> I want to believe, but I don't. I want to eat some candy. <laughs> Just keep watching the skis or the skies. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, I am Jeremy Colley. I'm Jack Doherty. I'm Jake Runyon. Happy Halloween, everyone.
Jake's Canned Air podcast. Yeah, Jake is hilarious. <laughs> oh, no. Gotcha. Wow, Buzz Lightyear saved your life. I'm not Buzz Lightyear. If it hadn't been for Buzz, Mankins would have been cooked. I'm not Buzz Lightyear. Thanks, Mr. Lightyear. I am not Buzz Lightyear. Then we're going to turn our attention over to Robin Shelby, who is the actress who portrayed... Start that again. <laughs> the Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains. We'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show. <laughs> 